This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm in conversation with Rico Norwood, who offered this beautiful and important introduction to Isaac Julian's seminal film, Looking for Langston, at a recent showing of the film as part of the BFI Flair program. Niggas be gay, bruh. <laughs> it may be simple, may sound funny, may even be disrespectful to say, but in that reserved dark solo room in the New York Public Library in the performing arts of the Dorothy and Louis B. Coleman Center, I saw Looking for Langston for the first time on a 16 millimeter and thought to myself, wow, niggas really do just be gay. A simple revelation brought forth by an extraordinary piece of work, Looking for Langston isn't just queer, black, surrealist, experimental, or interdisciplinary cinema. It's a whole other reality. From its opening scene that pays tribute to the deaths of black queer artists throughout the diaspora, to the Harlem Renaissance and its conversation of black art and queerness in the past, to the dark days of the HIV AIDS crisis, and the autonomous speakeasy that weaves and bobs through space and time, Isaac Julian curates an alternative timeline where giants walk amongst their lost and scattered children of the past and future. The omnipotent angels who hold pictures of Langston Hughes and James Baldwin mixing with the words and voices of Exus Hemphill and Stuart Hall blurs linearity and does more than just queer the film's form and practice, it queers it and records and rewrites history itself. I saw my future in this film, and I want you to get a glimmer of yours when you see it. As well as doing more justice to looking for Langston's importance than I could, we open with this introduction because Rico flags an important word, queer, which, as some of you already know, I have tattooed right across my throat. Quare, Q-U-A-R-E, was put forward by E. Patrick Johnson, the fairy godfather of black queer studies, in his 2001 essay, Queer Studies, or Almost Everything I Know About Queer Studies I Learned from My Grandmother. Part of what animates Johnson's theoretical intervention is an understanding that black queer people and the non-queer people who birth, nurture, and raise us often have much more to offer the world than we're given credit for. It is a queerness that energizes my own cultural and intellectual inquiry, and which brings me and Rico together, both as friends and conversation partners. Rico Norwood is an American film and video game researcher out of the University of Southampton, who currently resides in London and Berlin. Their primary academic concerns are black queer art and historical narratives through films, as well as video game studies with regards to race, gender, sexuality, and their development. Today, we explore looking for Langston's ongoing importance, the role cultural institutions like the BFI play in either gatekeeping or providing access to our queer cultural canons, and how politics of respectability and representation continue to hinder our collective cultural memory. 
and together we attempt to answer an enduring question, one addressed often on Busy Being Black. How do we ensure that work that could be so important to our liberation isn't so continually withheld from us? I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Rico Norwood at the British Film Institute. Thank you for being here, Rico. Thank you for having me. Um, we are going to talk about Looking for Langston, or rather, utilize Looking for Langston. Um, but first, how's your heart? Oh, that shit is heavy. <laughs> um, I think that this is such a very tumultuous time for various people occupying various spaces. My heart is very fucking heavy, <laughs> but it's very, very it's not being held alone. Multiple people are holding it up for me. Um, they are in the audience, some of them. I see their faces. <laughs> and some of them are abroad, but um, it's not that heavy with people. Mm. Yeah, so I'm good. <laughs> Someone asked me how I was doing the other day, and I was like, you know what? I'm just okay. And like, that's enough. You know, like, I've, I think I've kind of resisted more, or become more comfortable with not always feeling like I'm gonna burst with excitement. Damn, can I get to that level? I don't know how I do it. I actually think it's just Chardonnay, but you know, uh, well, let's unpack that in a different conversation. But um, <laughs> I, when you said that your heart is being held, I thought of the desire, or of desire more broadly, but certainly the desire that a film like Looking for Langston explores. And I wonder if that might be a nice segue into this conversation about art representation but I want to cement it in something more tangible, yeah. right? In the audience, if it's your first time seeing Looking for Langston, raise your hand. Oh, y'all. Wow. <laughs> uh, for listeners, everyone. So that's fantastic. Um, and I cannot wait to hear what you all think of Looking for Langston. For those of us who've just seen Looking for Langston for the first time, and indeed people who will be listening who haven't seen it at all, how would you describe the ultimate essence of looking for Langston? A manifestation of desire, but desire that's specifically catered to, created for, and looked upon by black queer subjects in that moment in time. And I always tell people or preface the film with also mentioning other films, but specifically Tongues Untied and Marlon Riggs's, which we couldn't show here tonight as well, because they, you can't say one without the other. Mm -hmm. That's the way that I look at them. And you can't discover one without the other because they're two different sides of that coin. And I always tell people where Julian deals with the desire and the fantasy of black queer life, Marlon Riggs comes with the reality and like, I know, child. That is such a great way <laughs> to bifurcate those pieces of work. It took me a long time to get to a place of understanding why that was, too, because 
you see how it was all jazzy and shit with, you know, like very surrealist, very, very flowy. Marlon Riggs shit ain't like that. Yeah, um, have you seen <laughs> Marlon Riggs' work, any of you? So, yeah, so Marlon Riggs is a very uh, uh, visceral approach to black queer bodies and lives, but not just among other queer black bodies and lives, but in the wider world, right? He confronts very mm -hmm. beautifully, but um, difficultly, I suppose you'd say, um, mm -hmm. the, the kind of cannibalization of black bodies. He confronted the kind of existential nature of living with HIV and knowing that he was gonna die. So I, I, that, I've never thought about understanding their work together that way as Isaac Julian's almost an Afrofabulation. Right? <laughs> so historical context and understanding, looking for Langston, the Harlem Renaissance, the New Negro Movement, all these things as well too. Um, the African American migration in the, before the 20s, um, in terms of like production methods going into the East Coast and urban parts of like America, drives a large body of black populations to these places. So the Harlem Renaissance is a byproduct of the African American migration in which like people are moving there, new people are coming to these communities, they're having job prosperities. But parallel or concurrently, art is also being created in this time. Um, and then so this is a capsule or like a zeitgeist for a lot of people to point in like African-American history, but like diasporic history of black art, queerness. Well, not even queerness, take that away. Because before it's very straight washed. You mean the Harlem Renaissance? The Harlem Renaissance, yes. yes. So I can even tell you when I was in middle school learning about the Harlem Renaissance, and it was one of the straightest moments in history that they proved like, regurgitate to us. Yes, yes. They talk about Langston Hughes, they talk about other jazz artists, they talk about Alan Locke and all that, but none of fire comes up, like nothing of like the context of what it was and things like that. Context for looking for Langston, but it takes that point in time and uses it as a conduit for a larger encompassing conversation. So you can even go back to some of Isaac Julian's like, you know, recordings on it and He'll say, like, I use this as a diasporic connection for, like, global black art. I wasn't just talking about Langston Hughes's life. I wasn't just talking about America. I was talking about everything, even, like, the Black Brighton experience, the Afro experience, like, globally, all these things that we can find, like, a mediation through. Mm. And, yeah, it was kind of like I found it that night in um, New York. I didn't know any, like, that was back in, like, 20... 14? So your introduction to Looking for Langston was in 2014 in New York. I had no idea about it, but a film critic put me onto it because he was in Isaac Julian's badass cinema docu um, documentary. Mm. And he's like, there's this person, Isaac Julian, I think you should watch it. And I literally was in there drinking coffee in that 16 millimeter film getting high off life. <laughs> like, I don't know what the fuck I was watching. Like, I literally was in a room like this by myself. And I could just always remember the real flickering away not knowing what I was exploring. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, niggas is gay. Like, that's literally what you meant. Like, you wasn't here. I was like, niggas be gay, bro. Niggas, gay. niggas is gay. I was like, wow. Niggas can really just be gay. And like, you know, like, and obviously that doesn't make sense when I say it to y'all. But coming some from of y'all, some yeah. of y'all, but to know what the possibility of one's life could be through a piece of art is a very, very profound moment 
that I think everybody has in their life, but you just don't know it when you have it or you're very, very aware of when you have it. Yeah. And that shit took me away. It probably speaks to the rarity, right, of, of representation, which is not to say that there isn't a great deal of representation, yeah. rather that our encounter with it can be quite rare, yeah. right? Because I think we always have to be careful when we're looking back and to the side and to forward and forward, uh, you know, if we're going to be looking rhizomatically to, to quote Jafari Allen, that we're not obscuring and erasing all of the people who are not as well known as Isaac Julian, but who have offered and contributed and put forward their, their version of that contribution, which to culture, which is sometimes just walking down the street. Shoot. So we're confronting ourselves and finding ourselves among people like us and people not like us and pieces of art. I remember seeing Looking for Langston for the first time and being like, that's what's like in my head. <laughs> 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 it's just dreamy and soft and everybody's pretty, you know? <laughs> very, very mystical, surreal. It's yeah, like my, 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 my Mercury's in Pisces. <laughs> so <laughs> I saw this and I was like, wow, that is exactly what I want. <laughs> like, how do you see that on drugs? Like, what does that feel like? I wish I could like experience that the first time, yeah. like wow, hi, oh my, like what am I watching? But I was very sober when I watched this. I was like, oh, okay, this is great. I'm probably going a little off piece. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's a here's a burning question I have. Looking for Langston is a transcendent, trenchant, beautiful offering that can reflect us back to ourselves. And what does it say about? who has access to what, that looking for Langston isn't more widely available, or that we can only see it in kind of rarefied opportunities such as these? Like being held by the BFI, yeah. Um, <laughs> parts of it. Um, cultural institutions acting as gatekeepers to archival material, but not also archival material, but just art and culture in general, isn't just like a partial BFI thing. It's a global type of phenomenon. If you go to Brooklyn, the BAM, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, um, it's a cultural hub and center as well too, but they hold on to like a lot of archival pieces that are prominent and dedicated to like the black culture and community around it. Oh, take that shit away. Go to the goddamn um, Harlem Center. I cannot think of the name of it. It just slipped me away literally guarding pieces of like voguing history or like black queer history in general. And the accessibility is so high to get into there. Mm. It's, it's astounding what people could see if they actually get through the trenches to access it. I think the BFI does do a good job in many ways, but I also think it can do much, much better jobs of like making like things like this, even though you can see looking for Langston anywhere, but in London, you actually can. <laughs> and, and like, that's the crazy thing about it. It's like the accessibility of the film, it's just not widely available. Yeah, it's it was. Not. Yeah, it was in the Tate for a permanent installation for a while. But I think that's the point, right? Is that there, there is this beautiful work that is behind these gates. How do we bring down those gates? I think that there are people who kind of like mediate that for like outside world. Like not that we're any different, but I think there are a lot of people who mediate it for it. Like there are a lot of things in film history that a lot of films didn't catch traction until like a couple of people like mediated for them or kind of like bolstered them even more. Right. 
even like talking about looking for Langston, how we break that down, its initial release and reception was not widely loved. One woman in like the LA Times said it was all flair and no substance. Right. <laughs> like, it was like, she was like, oh, no, it just looks good, but they don't do anything. And there were a lot of legal cases with um, Langston Hughes' estate when it came out as well, too. So even the initial, I wouldn't even say like, oh, we just come out with new films to make them accessible to everybody. Yeah. They're like gatekeepers. Multiple. Yeah, like, because yeah. like the BFI like, or institutions are one thing, but the white critics and audiences also <laughs> kind of like, push things back as well too. Yeah. And so I think to make them accessible or to get those barriers down to answer the question, it's about the right people seeing them and then bringing them to like wider audiences or worlds and things like that as well. And it feels like there's a great deal of work. I mean, we have to shout out Topher Campbell who with Ajamu created the Ruckus Archive which is housed at the Linda Metropolitan Archives and is the largest archive of queer black art. Um, in Europe, yeah. you know, and that's not as widely known as it as it ought to be X. either. A John <laughs> X, a, a incredible, incredible um, photographer and artist. Do you see it as part of? This is a leading question. Sorry. Okay. What do you see as your role in helping disseminate more of the queer black culture that has invigorated and animated your own sense of identity and belonging? As an academic, a researcher, and an archivist, which I also do on the side as well, on top of the video game research and freelance writing, preservation is like a motif that goes throughout all of those things, but preservation and also presentation of them as well, too. So if you notice when the credits went on, Oscar Michaud's name is there. Does anybody know who Oscar Michaud is? Bam, in the back. Thank you. <laughs> I don't. Oh, shit. Oscar Michaud is clouded as the first feature-length black filmmaker in America, maybe also in the world. Within Our Gates comes out in 1925 and is a response to Birth of a Nation in many, many ways in 1915, D.W. Griffin's, like, very, very racist, three-hour long propaganda. Yes. Child, it's a lot, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the world as it is, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so... This whole thing of the preservation of those things in my job as an archivist or a researcher too is to extrapolate these like cultural like icons and then disseminate that knowledge or my mediation of that knowledge to like a wider audience. So I don't just talk about looking for Langston or Oscar Michaud's in my PhD thesis. I talk about what they mean to other people and what they mean in a cultural context and what they could mean if people had access to them. The word that's phrase that's popping around in my head is cultural memory. Ooh, yeah. I'm having conversations on the show and uh, among friends about uh, like a reckoning and a remembering and a rememory is even a word that, that someone has, has brought up. I've spoken to archivists and conservationists from the wind uh, who are preserving and documenting um, family genealogies from the Windrush generation mm -hmm. to Danielle Brathwaite Shirley, who's just shown um, her work in At the Serpentine. There is this kind of thread running through. Uh, through your work, there's this preservation and presentation. And through their work is this, what they're calling archiving and documenting. It's all of the same kind of cultural memory making. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Yes, because cultural memory making is an ongoing thing that goes on and to be honest, like I think a lot of the ways that we record history, it gets redone over and over and over. Like right. the type of like revitalization of the Harlem Renaissance started kind of like in the 70s and went on afterwards, but like largely before that, it was a very, very straight 
washed event. It was black, but it was very, very straight washed. And I think what really, that whole thing of like cultural memory, it's like a very, very ongoing process of extrapolating lots of things, especially marginalized identities who are able to extract those things and see it from another light. Yeah. Like um, the side job that I have as a black archivist in Southampton, if you've ever been to Southampton, Southampton is white as hell. Like it's white. Like. <laughs> I white. love that you were like, that one, I'm <laughs> like, gonna go there. That, that white. <laughs> um, and so we've been doing the project for like a long time and I argue, well, I complain to my friends who are in the audience about it all the time as well too. It's a great job, but it's just very, very painstakingly done because you'll go through newspapers in like 1891 and it will be black people not being able to get on, um, the sailors refusing to sail because Negroes were like, <laughs> a part of the crew. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, in my mind, I was like, how many white people have seen this? Like, who has read this? Who has regurgitated, who has told people about this? And I know in Southampton for nobody. We don't talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because there's like the national cultural memory, you know, which as we know in Britain is um, <laughs> a, a work of art, Stop. actually. <laughs> <Should've> Picasso. <laughs> it's beautiful in its uh, delusion. But, you know, so there's like the kind of national slash nationalist cultural memory. And then there's the cultural memory of communities like the queer black communities, always plural, right? And so you've got the archivists, I'm trying, I guess I'm trying to map it out, right? No, so that bear makes with sense. me, y'all. But we've got like the, the preservationist archivists and, and then we've got the people from outside these institutions and the kind of legible art spaces, right? Yeah. That creates and, and maintains and uplifts and, and gatekeeps things like Looking for Langston. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about how the people outside like then inform a cultural memory. Like, are we understanding in new and more nuanced ways or more capacious ways even, how much of our collective understanding of ourselves as a community is informed by what happens outside of walls like these? It's so difficult, oh yeah. Because it's like a game where, like a game of telephone in terms of like people telling us a regurgitated past but nobody's going there to check the initial message. Mm. Like those people outside the boundaries, they just get the beginning of the message and it takes somebody from outside the boundaries to infiltrate, go in there and then say like, oh no, that shit didn't happen. Yeah. Like, no, that's not the way that I saw it. That's not the way that I read it. That's not the way that like I remember it as well too. Even like, we don't even have to go back to older memories. Think of Stonewall in 1969. Listen, we want to talk about fiction. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, there's a portion in my like um, thesis or my PhD where I argue I say there's all these concurrent stories in these myths legends and facts about Stonewall but literally people construct so much of their memory on this singular event at this time where people forget that so much shit happened before Hey. During and after it, <laughs> like right. So you talk about like there was a New York Times piece where they got there, and it was like the anniversary. It was like think right after like the post shooting, and they had some people who were at Stonewall, and they were like saying like you know like I just don't remember all those black 
queer people there. Like, I don't remember trans people being there. I just don't remember it. I like, I saw it, but I don't remember it. And then they countered with artists saying, well, you know, like, just these people are harbingers. It doesn't matter if they weren't there or not. These people represent so much more even before the stuff was happening, during it, and after. Like, Marsha P. Johnson, like, there's different interviews where they say like, you know, like, oh, I got there kind of late, or oh, I got there, you know, like, oh no, I was there, like conflicting stories as well too. But the whole crux of it all is this fixation on this very, very westernized rising up to take down the establishment bullshit regurgitated by that Stonewall film that came out in like 2014 by the yeah. dude who did goddamn was... Pacific Blue in, in Independence Day. Like, you know, like. No, do you remember the poster of the young white man like, <laughs> fighting for rights? <laughs> and there was like a collective global, like, you gotta be kidding me, like, come on. <laughs> I, it, this is what it comes to. And like, those people on the outside who don't have access to like the material, the stories, the personal stories, or even like just like the experience of being around and hearing perspectives about them. Yeah, yeah. Can it can just fumble so much shit up. Yeah, so what we're doing is we are kind of it's twofold, like a or symbiotic rather. Like there needs to be an invitation from of the outside in to to the kind of official cultural memory, to the access of that, yeah. right? Here's how we verify in the institutional ways that verification is necessary. You know, here's how we verify your lived experience and your culture's history, yeah. but also what can you bring to that, right? Because mm -hmm. I imagine there are so many people who have photos and stories and poems and things they've collected and, and little minutia that they've gathered over the course of a life that could help contextualize history in a beautiful way. And that verification is bullshit because the verification mostly Tell it. the verification mostly is accommodated by like very, very harsh institutions, very, very white led institutions, and very much institutions that have a history of violence towards the people that they're trying to remediate the history to. Like you shouldn't think that I'm an authority because I have a PhD and shit. My father knows cars better than anybody else, but he doesn't have a beard. It's social knowledge, it's social expertise. And these people have just as much authority to tell these stories as those do. My nigga. My nigga, that's right. <laughs> these people have just as much authority to tell these stories. Um, in my research job for like the video game one, um, it's this whole thing of like marginalized identities in video gaming and stories for them and stuff like that as well too. So in the research processes of going through and saying like, how do we define this? How do we talk about this? People kept going to like experts and PhD people and stuff like that in the academy. And at one point we was like, why the fuck do we have to go to these people mm -hmm. to establish or legitimize knowledge outside of those realms? Like those now that knowledge is just as valid or if not more valid than the knowledge in these like ivory institutions. The BFI Rubin Library at BFI South Bank is available to everyone free of charge. It contains a huge collection of books, journals, and digitized material about the world of film, television, and the moving image. Their priority is comprehensive coverage of the UK, but the collection is international. Busy Being Black returns in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day 
at sax.com. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. Today, a conversation with Rico Norwood on the enduring importance of Isaac Julian's Looking for Langston, recorded live as part of BFI Flair. Fun fact. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I always have loads of fun facts. Um, so uh, queer black studies, like in the academy, was inaugurated by the essay um, that E. Patrick Johnson wrote yeah. in 2000. Queer studies are everything I know about queer studies I learned from my grandmother. Queer, yeah. Queer, yeah, I have it on my <laughs> neck. Um, and an essential part of that and of queer black studies is that there has queer black theory and, and radical queer black theory is that we have to take um, knowledge from the ivory tower to the front porch is what they is what E. Patrick Johnson said. Like, yeah. does this make sense to my grandmother? If it doesn't, throw it out, right? Like, it, it has to be relevant to her life and has to make sense. And so then there's this other kind of, I guess, um, drive emerging in the academy and beyond, right? Like, how are we using the access we have to places like the BFI to the academy, to pod podcast platforms, to art galleries, to like, re do you call it remediating? Like, yeah. re like disseminating what's, yeah. wh what's there? Like, it's just Because so it just much. can't be contained here. It's like... I mean, it is, but it shouldn't be. I think about in times where I've integrated or not integrated, snuck into the academy. And like, I was teaching a lecture in Southampton Zora Hurst Nelson's um, Their Eyes Was Watching God was a part of the reading. They read it, and I read the papers, and the person who wrote the paper said, this book taught me that black people are lazy. And that, <laughs> not, this was like last, last two years ago, like two years ago before the pandemic. He told me that black, um, black people are lazy and that they'll get over you at any chance that they get. This is like a second, third year university student. I read that fucking paper. I was like, yo. <laughs> Do you mean white people? <laughs> yeah. I read the paper and I thought they, nobody like me has ever been here. Right. Nobody like me has ever talked to these kids. Nobody like me has ever like, money, what? Like, you know, like nobody has never like. Challenged that. Challenged that thought. And so I read the paper, went to my um, supervisor, the person who sits over the module. I was like, yo, you need to read this. And she read it like, oh, yeah, it's a bad paper. I was like, no, 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 no. You need to read this. Yeah, the content is important. <laughs> and she said, oh. She was like, how would you? And I really like that she did this. Her name is Shelly. Shelly actually did the BFI's Women's in Indi um, the Industry here. Yeah. Shout out to Shelly. <laughs> um, Shelly's telling me, what do you want? How do you want to do this? Like, right, how do you want? Right. Shelly didn't take the will, like, I'll take care of this. She was like, no, 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 no. How do you want to go about doing this? I'm like, let me talk to him. <laughs> yeah. And when you say, like, how do we get that out? It's not like saying, like, oh, I got it out. No, I think it's if more people like me were allowed into those spaces, this wouldn't have been a problem. Right. And it possibly could have been a problem, but also it's just like if more people, like, who don't fit the hegemonic idea of those places are let into those places, then the knowledge is challenged and it's not happening in a vacuum anymore. Mm. And then it's like, oh no, I can't say black people are lazy after reading like the first intro from Zora Hurst Nelson's book there, I was watching God. <laughs> like, <laughs> are we talking about the same book? It is a piece of <laughs> that. Like that, that's literally 
what happens inside those institutions like that yeah. if they don't talk or and it's sad to say allow people in like they're the power structures but also i i'm a firm believer that i can't rely on power structures to fully represent who i am or help me survive you're not they're not meant to so you just build your own on the outside of it and then just give those to the people around you in your community Mm, I love that. Yeah, like, I think that that's a way that you counteract it rather than us breaking into, like, <laughs> breaking into the BFI, breaking into the tape. <laughs> Break, it's like smash it, like yeah, breaking not into, this BFI. <laughs> not this BFI. Not tonight. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, rather than trying to constantly chip away at systems of oppression that have always excluded marginalized identities, you say, fuck that shit, you build your own and then you include other people who have also been kept on the outside mm -hmm. to those spaces. I know it sounds very, very vague, but in practice. It doesn't. You know. Because what we're saying then, because there's two things that come up in my mind as a result of what you're saying. The first is that just as in this kind of like micro interaction that you had, which is bigger than micro, but you get what I mean. Like this yeah. micro interaction you had at Southampton University with this student, um, that's similar to in the same vein of the kind of um, uh, censored images that come out or that are delivered through cultural institutions like the BFI, right? Because if you think about what it takes to make it into the Tate, right? <laughs> or MoMA, right? So by the time a piece of art that a black queer person has created that w is naturally held to an exceedingly different standard, right? <laughs> we've, seen, we've all been to an art gallery, you know, like, so we're kind of already seeing this at once really rarefied example of what black queer art can be. We're also seeing mass media deliver kind of abject violence back to us against black bodies. And so I think it can be quite disorienting to navigate life as a queer black person or a black person more broadly yeah. and to have access to um, images, culture that might prove healing. So the building of these spaces outside of, yeah. to, to follow this long thought through, <laughs> provides that space, right? Yeah. It provides a, a rejection of the hegemonic institution and says, we can build this ourselves. I love that. Yeah, because literally, like, people, when they think of black queer, queer cinema, Moonlight is, <laughs> Jesus, Moonlight is like the first, I know, y'all, Moonlight is really, really straight washed. Like it's really, really straight washed. It's a, it's a type. But this is what happens, right? Moonlight became the. Someone asked me, because you know, you grew up in Houston. I grew up in Atlanta. They were like, "Was that what it was like for you?" I was like, <laughs> "The cocoa butter budget is so high in like, Moonlight." I am, I am quite clearly from the suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> like black people are so glossy in it, and I was just like, I've never seen black people that shiny before, in real life. And I was like, the color grading must be like incredible. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's, but the tableau, and the thing about it, I always tell people, Langston had, looking for Langston had to crawl so Moonlight could run. Yeah, because they're, uh, Moonlight and looking for Langston are in the Venn diagram as a circle. Yeah, and it's just like. I mean, it's a different type of fantasy, right? But it is a fantasy nonetheless, or a fabulation is probably more accurate. Yeah, and it's just like. Looking for Langston was doing a lot. like the most tangible example of it is if you see Moonlight and at the end of Moonlight, they just hold each other and kiss and it just fades to black. And I was like, "What the we fuck? Should have fucked. fucked. We should have." <laughs> what clap 
doing that. They should have fucked. They should have fucked. And you. The, we were robbed. <laughs> we were robbed. We'll never and, get over it. And I remember being in New York, hearing about Moonlight, going to see Moonlight, and like, oh, everybody's talking about Moonlight, 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 oh, Moonlight. I was like, okay, let me go see it. And when it ended, I was like, that's it? Yeah. Like, they not going to fuck? Like, you know, like, I'm. I think it's so dangerous to see black men fucking, like, you know, literally naked, embracing one another, not no artful, like, fade into the, and you just, like, imagine, oh, that must, he must be the top. And the other one must be the, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> yeah. looking for Langston, you literally see body parts. And Ajamu X does this thing where he, like, the archive is the body. It's not, like, an establishment that you go into. It's not, like, this place that you download. It's literally the body. And you're seeing history through bodies on screen. And all the advancements we've made, all that we claim that we made, all these things that we claim that we did, we still can't see two black men fucking on, like, you know, yeah. like mainstream cinema. Like, we just can't see it. And that boggles me so much. Like, why is that so dangerous, hardful? Like, why is that so hard for people to, like, see? Joseph Beam said black men loving black men is a revolutionary act, right? Yeah. We might say it's destructive, right, to the dominant order, right? <laughs> that, because if you see two black men fucking, and, you know, we're saying fucking, but that could be any type of sexual engagement. You've seen people fucking films before. Yeah, but I think <laughs> what I'm trying to get at is that to do that, what's lost in the absence of fucking in Moonlight is that is the kind of interiority that they tried so hard to come across, right? That that thoughtful, meditative, contemplated, contemplative, like refusal to speak almost, right? That silence. that animates the silence. Thank you. That thank you. That's obviously silence. <laughs> that kind of animates that movie is really important. But the importance of that I think is lost because we were robbed of that that moment when that silence could have been broken. And you can just see niggas fucking. Like, it's, <laughs> like, that's such a simple. And we could have seen two guys. You can see niggas fucking. Like, and that's just, like, it's, it's very, very much in this anthropological type of, like, the way that white people did jazz. Like, it's very, ooh. Like, when you go to Ronnie Scott's and you see, like, the silhouette say, like, ooh. It's very clean. Jazz. It's clean. Like, you know, like, I never paid for a jazz show in my life. Jazz was always on the corner on Frenchman in New Orleans, like of somebody like literally playing, and we just all out there like. Yeah, can we also note the pronunciation of New Orleans? Like literally, it's like, like it's that and Moonlight is this like very very anthropological look into like another world from like, and we can't even blame white people all on this one. Barry Jenkins kind of did that up as well too, the adaptation of the play. And you know, like I think when I saw it, I was like, no, it's an important film, but you can, you can understand that they got to that part and like they can't fuck on, they can't fuck on screen. Do you think that we demand more as queer black people from queer black creators because of the rarity of it. Because I, as you were talking, I was thinking about all the other cult pieces in the cultural canon, like, and not the black one, just the larger cultural canon that we yeah. consider important. And they're not all amazing, right? Not each one does everything. Yeah. Do we demand more from 
the queer black art that's put into public spaces because we know how hard it is to get. Think of the concessions that Barry Jenkins will have had to have made in order to get Moonlight into theaters, right? Like, I imagine there was a structural, many structural barriers and concessions he had to make, but yet we're looking at this as queer black people thinking this could have been so much more, you know? The reality of production, both in a film sense and outside of production in any type of like media that one creates or art that one creates goes through like a filtration system where sacrifices have to be made, um, deals have to be cut and things like that as well too. I expect that from the first film. <laughs> but the second one, homie? Okay. Fair. You got a whole Oscar, <laughs> you can do, like, you know, like, Beyonce had to do a whole bunch of stuff with Destiny's Child <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> you know, denim fits and everything. I remember. Ladies Leave Your Man at Home. One. Yeah, I'm going to I remember. <laughs> she think we forget about Ladies Leave Your Man at Home, but we don't forget that. Never forgot. Never forgot that. No. She had to do a lot of stuff. But when she got to a point of like, okay, I'm the shit, yeah. I can do what I want to do. Like, you know, and like Lemonade and stuff like that, you know, like arguably like Bell Hooks went in Lemonade and like all that type of stuff. But it was a very, very robust piece of work opposed to everything that came before. Cause you know, like yeah. the filtration system that is there had to go through it. And so maybe part of the solution, I'm, I'm aware that we need to come to draw to a close, yeah. but maybe part of the solution, tell me if you think this is an appropriate um, attempt at a solution, is that we should hopefully be able to or get better at recognizing what's missing so that we might help also fill in those gaps. Oh. Right? If we can that. understand how Moonlight, what Moonlight is and what the, be what the beauty it does offer and its relationship to looking for Langston yeah. and that relationship to Marlon Riggs and that relationship to Josephine and Essex <laughs> Hemphill and, you know, like and Melvin Dixon and Asado Saint and, uh, that generation of the long 1980s, as Professor Allen would call it. Like, if we can understand, maybe this is part of the cultural memory piece, right? That it's not all here, and it's not all going to be here, but hopefully if all of us contribute, we can get it there. Pieces of the puzzle, if we all put them together and understand that looking for Langston is a part of a bigger pie of art and representation that deals with like marginalized identities in general, I think that that's how a tangible solution mm -hmm. could be put part of it. Don't show moonlight, show looking for Langston, moonlight, tongues untied, all these things to show like there's a rich history of this already going on. Um, to close, I normally ask all of my guests what you hope for, but I'm gonna ask you a different question. Ooh. There will be young black queer kids all around the world who are encountering, who will be looking for themselves and won't know exactly where to look, right? Mm -hmm. They might come up against a erasure or a violence or a void. Yeah. Where have you found yourself and your people? I found my people through various places, various states, various like locations, various pieces of art various like memories, various events. Um, I found my people in Looking for Langston. I found my people in Fusion's nightclub that has burned down in New Orleans. <laughs> I found my people in people who are no longer here with me, like James, not the James, he's here. That James is here. Hi James. <laughs> but the, another friend of my James who died, um, 
I found my people through like moments in my life. And I can only hope that I leave breadcrumbs the way that Isaac Julian left for me and like how Langston Hughes left for him and how like the people before them left them for so people can follow those same breadcrumbs like I did and find some sense of self in a world that literally allows you to not construct your own. Mm -hmm. That's it, I, psh, nothing beautiful. That was beautiful, <laughs> that was really beautiful. Rico Norwood. <laughs> that was beautiful. Rico Norwood is an American film and video game researcher out of the University of Southampton who currently resides in London and Berlin. They hail from Houston, but received their undergraduate degree in mass communications from Xavier University of New Orleans and their MA in media studies at Long Island University's Brooklyn campus. Their primary academic concerns are black queer art and historical narratives through films, as well as video game studies with regards to race, gender, sexuality, and their development. I'd like to extend a special thank you to Katie Reddington at the BFI for her encouragement, enthusiasm, and energy. Busy Being Black is the podcast exploring how we live in the fullness of our queer black lives. Thank you to our partners, UK Black Pride, Blackout UK, The 10th, Schools Out, and to you, the listeners. Your support of Busy Being Black means the world. Please do rate and review the show and tell others. The more you do, the more people like us get to hear the stories and voices amplified here. And finally, thank you to my friend and co-conspirator Lazarus Lynch, a musician and culinary extraordinaire based in New York City for creating Busy Being Black's triumphant and ancestral theme music. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.